0: Ron Gilbert, Gary Winnick, and the team at Lucasfilm Games spent months designing Maniac Mansion. With seven playable characters, each with their own special abilities, they wanted to ensure that there were countless ways to solve puzzles and to get through the game. They spent a lot of time making sure that they could go over all of the possibilities to ensure that there was a path to the end, no matter which combination of characters you chose. When it came time to sit down and program the game, Ron Gilbert realized that programming a game with the depth that they had created was near impossible, so he went to the drawing board and decided that he would create his own game engine to make it easier and faster to write his adventure games. His creation, The Scum Engine, powered some of the most popular adventure games of the late 80s and 1990s, Maniac Mansion included. Today, We're going to tell you the history of Maniac Mansion, which includes the creation of the legendary Scum engine. As part of their story, we'll also look at the early career of their creator, Ron Gilbert. So stick around for today's manic episode as we take another trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 162nd episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week, we'll tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, a console, a person, just whatever I want to talk about, as long as somehow, some way, I made it relevant to this week. While well, doing so, we hope to teach you something new about whatever topic I want what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. Today, we're all going to learn about Maniac Mansion, originally released for the Commodore 64 and Apple II computers on April 5th, 1987. I'm David Kasson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, best described really as just the scum of the earth. He's my brother, Rob Kasson. Rob, how do you go about your day as such an upstanding individual minute by a minute
1: hour by hour dave i mean that's the only way to live your life indeed it is
0: one second at a time Mm-hmm. ain't no lie there really don't think we have any choice in the matter
1: um there's always a choice
0: <laughs> live or don't live i don't care <laughs> that's your I choice there
1: hey, you go that's morbid it's a choice what are you playing? Well, Dave, this week has been some RuneScape, some Rocket League, some
0: Payday. You really didn't know whether to start with Rocket League or RuneScape, did you? You held that R for a long time. I was trying to think of what I played.
1: Gotcha. And I was just using that because I know that there's two that I always have. So it's easy. What else did I play? Very but true. Yeah, it was the two R's and the P. So that's it for me.
0: How about you this week? Rocket League, more Tears of the Kingdom, nice. and I tried Lies of P. Ah, what'd you think? It's it's such a souls like. I mean it's straight up a souls-like. Like I could take the game off the screen and leave up the HUD, and you'd think it was you'd be like, Oh, that's that's a Dark Souls. Nope. Nope, but it's a it's, it's a Souls like game. Like it's 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 such a Souls like. It's not even Hmm. funny. It is right up your alley. Uh, It is not mine. (laughs) We've talked about this repeatedly. (laughs) I know that I may have expressed some interest in playing other Souls likes because I had so much fun with uh, Elden Ring. I don't know if that's going to continue to extend to other uh, Souls likes because, you know, like. I keep beating my head on this. <laughs> There's a demo of it if you want to. Well, you can. You have Game Pass. You can go play the game. Yeah, uh, indeed I could. It it's a Souls like. I I can't. I would very much recommend it for you and your Souls like friends because you're not gonna feel out of place at all.
1: Fair enough. Well, let's see. I, it's
0: it, I I just I can't even begin to describe it to you. Like the HUD, the controls. Like the way the game, like everything, like you would literally swear it was Dark Souls. Like it's just so doesn't try to be anything different. It it, it yeah, that's the only way to put it.
1: I mean, hey, it obviously
0: works, Dave. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting story. It's it's the re, a modern retelling of Pinocchio. That's the P and and Liza P, right? So, it, I mean it. I'm not going to say I don't like the story. I just like, you know, you beat a boss, you die. You got to do the whole part over again. You beat a boss, you die. You got to do the whole part over. Like, it's just fucking brutal.
1: Yeah, that sounds a little bit like it, Dave. No,
0: it is it. (laughs) It is it. It is it.
1: (sighs) Well, that's enough of Lies of P, Dave. I think we have another game to talk about today. We don't.
0: That's all I came here for.
1: Sounds good. Well, have a good night. Bye. Adios. You ever played
0: Maniac Mansion? I can't say that I have. I've never even heard of it, Dave. No, you've never even heard of Maniac Mansion.
1: Nope. I've heard of Luigi's Mansion.
0: Yeah, which I've never played, actually. I can't say I've ever played it, but I just know. Uh, So, you know, Luigi's Mansion, but you've never heard of its older brother, Maniac Mansion.
1: Exactly.
0: I mean, that's a fair statement. I can, I can, I can see that. I can totally see it. I have played Maniac Mansion. You know what I remember the most about Maniac Mansion? What's that? The garage of the mansion has an Edsel, has a Ford Edsel, like an like that's the that's the car. It's an Edsel,
1: mm-hmm. and I was
0: like, "What the fuck is an Edsel Ford?" Like it's the joke. So,
1: ah, uh, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So good one
0: ron gilbert ron gilbert ron gilbert Ron the director no not ron howard ron gilbert damn his story is similar to so many other visionary video game designers that worked in the industry at this time i feel like i've told this story over and over and over initially gilbert saw himself as a film director, he was into movies. he wanted to continue a career in the film industry, uh, and you know, as a teenager, that's what he saw himself doing. But when he was thirteen, his father brought home an HP65 programmable calculator, and Gilbert found himself interested with the ability to program games in the calculator. He saw that. As a creative outlet that he could explore aside from his film studies, you know, pr- learn how to program games while, while working on his film studies. The same year that his father came home with the programmable calculator, Star Wars was released to the world. 1977, I believe. And Ooh, you're going to get
1: flamed if you're wrong there, Dave. I Hope, you know,
0: I'm not wrong. Mm. And Star Wars caught Gilbert's attention like everyone else. Um, At that moment, it seemed like his future could go either way. You know, there are many film directors that cite Star Wars as a creative, as like the creative endeavor that pushed them into film, you know, into film uh, making or development. In Gilbert's case, he saw himself merging programming with the excellent storytelling of Star Wars and he started to lean towards video game development even more. But his love for film still really had a hold on him. In 1978, a year later, he and his friend Tom McFarlane made a couple of films on a Super 8 camera. The first film they shot was called Star Blasters. It was directed by Ron Gilbert, and it was acted by Tom McFarlane and another friend. And then a year later, in 1979, they filmed another movie, Tomorrow Never Came, that was also directed by Ron Gilbert and was acted by Tom and Ron. They started it. So, you know, e- e- even in the wake of Star Wars, it seemed like he was going to be a, a film guy. But that same last year that they filmed Tomorrow Never Came in 1979, get Ron Gilbert's parents purchased a North Star Horizon home computer. No, I don't think we've ever tripped on North Star before, so I kinda of don't know if we ever will again. So I thought we could take a few moments to talk about what a North Star Horizon was. It was a popular 8-bit computer that was originally released in November of 1977. They sold it uh, pre-assembled or as a kit like so many like m- most computers back then. One of the versions of it that you'll find if you look it up online, it came in a plywood cover, so it kind of looks like an old woody station wagon with disk drives on the front, which is kind of cool. It's that old wood look, you know? Oh, yeah. No, I definitely know what you're talking about. Um, But the Horizon has some things of note about it. It was one of the first computers to ever have built-in floppy drives, personal computer to have built-in floppy drives. They also later launched a version that had a hard disk drive. It was one of the first computers to ever have a hard disk drive. That hard disk drive was a 18 megabyte drive on an 18 inch platter, which is crazy to think about these days. Now, Star is a company was only around for about four years. Probably never heard of it before. Am I right about that?
1: Uh Yeah. Yeah, I think so.
0: Yeah, but that pretty much tells you everything that you need to know about its legacy. You know, there were a lot of little computer manufacturers in the early days of computers, but eventually like, IBM PCs took over and Amiga and Commodore, and you started to filter into all these like popular brands. Um, I will tell you one other fun fact about the company that I think you'll appreciate. It was originally formed in June of 1976 as Kentucky fried computers to handle, to handle retail and mail order sales uh, of its computers out of its, its office in Berkeley, California. But as you can imagine, There was a certain company that wasn't too happy with the name. So it was changed early on in, uh, you know, as a result, as a response to a a lawsuit. So Jesus, Kentucky Fried Computers. That's incredible. That's awesome. (laughs) I know. I thought you'd like that one. Now, the addition of the North Star Horizon to Ron Gilbert's home pushed him further towards a career of game development. He started studying and analyzing games such as Donkey Kong, Pac-Man, Asteroids, and Space Invaders. He wrote notes on them. He then tried to replicate them on his computer. Once he was able to replicate these games, he started to change them to better learn how things work. He also used to look at advertisements in magazines. He would imagine what the game was like to play based on the advertisement and then he would try to recreate said game on his computer once he was done making his games he would bring friends over to test them and he would grill them ask them what they liked and what they didn't like you know he was really into learning about how to make these games and and do it well so ron turned his programming hobby into a career in about at about uh would have been 1983 when he wrote a program called Graphics Basic with his film buddy, Tom McFarland, the two of them wrote Graphics Basic. Graphics Basic was an extension for the Commodore Basic programming language. It added a little over 100 commands to the basic language, which made it much easier for programmers to access the graphic and sound capabilities of the Commodore 64. Prior to that, they would have to like use commands called peek and poke which was addressing like the memory that affected things directly. And, you know, the, the addition of the basics, you know, wasn't a memory address. It was like draw a square, this to this pixel, this to this pixel. I'm simplifying it, but it just, it made it, it made it much easier of not having it to directly program graphics and having easier to use commands and things like that. Um, They ended up selling Graphics Basics to a California software company named uh, Hezware, Human Engineered Software, I believe Hez is. They were around for, I think, four years, too. Uh, Hezware then turned around and offered Ron Gilbert a job. He spent half a year programming action games for them, and then the company went out of business. In a cosmic stroke of luck, Ron Gilbert then got a job working at Lucasfilm Games. Now, if you don't know why that's a cosmic stroke of luck, Lucasfilms made Star Wars. And Star Wars is one of the games that pushed him in, one of the movies rather, that pushed him into game development. So that was like probably a dream come true for the guy, you know?
1: That Yeah, that's 100%. That's
0: kind of incredible that he managed to get in there. So initially, he was hired to port Atari 800 games over to the Commodore 64. A couple that he worked on were called a Corona's Rift and Ballblazer. But in 1985, he was offered the opportunity to co-develop his own game alongside a graphic artist called Gary called named he's called, or he's named uh, Gary Winnick. Now, Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick had met prior to this. You know, they were both employees at Lucasfilm Games. It would later become LucasArts. So if I slip into LucasArts, same company, different, you know, they changed their name eventually. Um, When they split off the Lucas, they split off the gaming portion from the film division and changed it from Lucasfilm Games to its own division called LucasArts. So they, they later met at. Lucas Arts, Lucasfilm Games, and and Gary and Ron found that they had similar tastes in humor, you know, film, television. They they were fast friends. They both enjoyed B horror films. And so they decided that they wanted to make a game that was a comedy horror game set in a haunted house. And their initial inspiration came from a, 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 a film. Now, in interviews, they can't recall the name of the film, but they know the idea. It was a it was a they describe it as a ridiculous teen horror movie in which teenagers inside a building were killed off one by one without giving any thought to leaving the, the building, which could be a million horror movies, to be fair. But, you know, that was their initial uh, inspiration. They took this idea And they combined it with cliches from other horror movies. They drew inspiration from Friday the 13th. They drew inspiration from Nightmare at Elm Street. And all these ideas kind of became the basis for the game's setting. Now, during the development of this game that would later become Maniac Mansion, Lucasfilm Games was moved to what's called the Stable House at Skywalker Ranch. So they were just in an office And famously, that division was eventually moved to uh, George Lucas's like creative compound, which is called Skywalker Ranch. And Lucasfilm Games was moved to one of the buildings in Skywalker Ranch. The main house of Skywalker Ranch was actually used as a model for the mansion in Maniac Mansion. Several of the rooms in the game are actually exact reproductions of the house in the game. For example, there is a library in the mansion that has a spiral staircase in the middle. This was lifted right from the main house of Skywalker Ranch. As they wrote the story for Maniac Mansion, they drew on their actual lives. The cast of the game is the ideas, the personalities, the characters came from their friends, came from their family members, and came from just acquaintances of theirs. For example, uh, there are two characters. There are actually seven characters in the game altogether. Um, the way the game is played, it's uh, one guy trying to save his girlfriend. And you can choose between him and he can take two people with him. So you can play as three characters at one time. And I'll get into that in a moment. But there are seven characters. Uh, two of them were named Dave and Wendy. They were based on Ron himself. Dave was Ron and Wendy was another Lucasfilm employee uh, named Wendy. There's another character named Razor that was based on Gary Winnick's girlfriend. Uh, so they 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 pulled from their own life. They took inspiration for the family that lived in the mansion. It's a creepy family. Uh, they inhabited the mansion. The characters came from... Um, their inspiration came from characters in the pages of EC Comics, the pages of various magazines published by Warren Publishing. EC Comics is perhaps best known for its Tales from the Crypt series. You familiar with that one? Mm, I, I, I don't believe so, Dave. You've never tripped on Tales from the Crypt.
1: Hmm. No, that's a lie. I, I've i definitely <laughs> seen Tales from the Crib.
0: Okay, okay. I was about to be like, I know I'm old, but I don't think I'm that old. Like, that was a thing when I was a kid. Like, that was a thing. The show, at yeah, least. I, I, I was
1: going to say, I've definitely seen one or two, but it's not something I'm too familiar with.
0: Uh, I prefer Tales from the Hood. Oh, my God. Please, please, no. <laughs> that's such a bad movie. Good movie, but bad movie. Oh yeah. Uh, so war so EC Comics, known for Tales from the Crypt, Warren Publishing Magazine Company, they were known for doing like horror magazines. Uh, some of their magazines include After Hours, Creepy, Airy, and Famous Monsters of Filmland. Um, And you can clearly see inspiration elsewhere in the game. There's a man-eating plant in the game that very obviously is from the Little Shop of Horrors. Feed me, Seymour. You know that one? No. (laughs) Shut up. You know that one. So they they pulled all this inspiration. They worked to bring all the characters, the setting and the story together. While doing so, they really tried to balance the tension and humor, the horror and the comedy within the game. But even with a story in mind, even with all this work that they had done until this point, they didn't know what type of game they wanted to create. They, they just, they didn't, they had no clue. This changed though, during the holiday season, Gilbert was home visiting relatives over Christmas and he saw his cousin playing King's Quest: Quest for the Crown. Now we've talked about King Quest, King King Quest, King's Quest before, back in episode eighty-nine. Um, it's a Roberta Williams Sierra online early Sierra. You know that's the the Williams or Sierra online. It's an early title done by the Williams. It's a really important title in the adventure genre. King's Quest is a series consistently pushed the technology of gaming forward as the series progressed. You may not guess it, but they did. And here we see that its legacy is also influencing Ron Gilbert. This was the first time that he had ever experienced a graphic adventure. You know, prior to that, he had played text adventures, like so many of us. That was one of the unique things about King's Quest. It it Pushed the adventure genre forward as a graphic adventure. Um, so he had never experienced a graphic adventure before. So he, he had the opportunity to play King's Quest over the holiday. He played the game. He familiarized himself with the format and he returned from work from the holiday break to work, convinced that he wanted to make maniac mansion, a graphic adventure and sold the idea to Gary. And so it was, So with all this in mind, they continued to work on the design of Maniac Mansion. They took their ideas up until this point, and they turned it into a paper and pencil board game. The mansion's floor plan was used as a game board, and they made cards, probably note cards, to represent characters and events. They drew lines uh, between the rooms to show the paths by which the characters could move from room to room. In fact, if you ever play Maniac Mansion, there is a poster on the wall in one of the I think it's a bedroom in the in the mansion. And that poster is actually that game board map that they drew and added into the game. The final version of the game, like I said, has seven characters. You play as Dave, uh, who has to go rescue his girlfriend, and he can take uh, two of six other characters so as you can imagine um as you can imagine there's a lot of variations in how a story can play out in theory if you if it plays out differently with each individual character, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they spent months working on all these different combinations of events that that would occur depending on which three characters you put together. There was a lot of time spent on the design of Maniac Mansion before the team even started to code anything. And frankly, they really just wanted to get it right. And we know the importance of wanting to get things just right, don't we, Rob? You know, I suppose we do, Dave. You know, each week we spent cou- countless, countless, countless hours researching, writing, recording, and producing each episode of our podcast, A Trip Down Memory McCard Lane.
1: That's right. When we first started, we spent many, many more hours than we do now, didn't we?
0: Yeah, we sure did. Uh, but that was before I found this the all-in-one set of podcasting tools provided by Zencaster. With
1: Zencaster, it's super easy to record a podcast. Everyone logs in using their web browser, and you just start recording a high-quality podcast right away. It allows you to record up to 4K video with your guests. And with Zencaster's multi-layered backups always have the highest quality recordings even if the connection's unstable
0: and with Zencaster you never have to worry about what you sound like Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth it automatically gets rid of all those ums ahs awkward pauses just removes them all with a click of the button you can also set the right podcast loudness you can eliminate background noise uh, you can uh, eliminate cross gate which is you know when people talk you know, uh, audio among uh, top of one another. There's all these things that you can do with just a click of a button.
1: And if the thought of podcasting overwhelms you because you think you need tons of different tools and services, relax. Those days are over. With ZenCaster's all in one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place. And you can even distribute it to Spotify, Apple, and other destinations.
0: So if you'd like to start your own podcast or you want to take your current podcast to the next level, we've got a deal for you. All you have to do is go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use our offer code memory card lane and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid platform.
1: So sign up for Zencaster today and you can experience the same ease in producing your own high quality podcast as we do each week. Get out there and make the next great podcast creation with a great set of tools provided by none other than Zencaster.
0: And speaking of a great set of tools, Rob, Ron Gilbert, Gary Winnick, and the team spent months working on the design of maniac mansion, but now we're down to the point when they actually have to program the game. So with the design of the game, mostly in place, Gilbert started to program maniac mansion in 6502 assembly language, which is what the, uh, so many devices of the time, like the Commodore and NES were naturally coded in but he quickly realized that their design uh the design they had been working months on was way too large and complex for this method so he decided that a new game engine would have to be created to to get anywhere he partnered with another Lucasfilm games employee chip morningstar who wrote the base code for the new engine from there ron gilbert took it he built the system up he hoped to create a system that could be used to make many different adventure titles and reduce the amount of time that it took to make them. Ron Gilbert and the team spent the next six to nine months of development on their new adventure engine, which technically ended up as a tool that's somewhere between a programming language and a game engine. And basically what it does, uh, I, I will take the technical part of it and Make it as simple as I can. It was developed to take human-readable commands, so like "walk this guy this way," um, and turn those into bite-sized what are called tokens that could be read by an interpreter program that would present a game to a player. Um, I- I'll I'll explain it. There's an example if you look up this engine that that's frequently used, and the 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 scum. The, the engine's called Scum. The Scum command is called walk Dr. Fred to laboratory door. Pretty simple, right? Um, yeah, I'd say so. Sure. Right. So in Scum, each piece of that sentence was converted into a single byte of code. So walk was one byte. The character Dr. Fred was its own byte. The object and laboratory door was converted into two bytes. So this whole action was four bytes of data. And nothing specific about the game was hard-coded into the Scum Engine. Dr. Fred was just a script number to the compiler, meaning that, you know, at one point you would tell the computer what, like, Dr. Fred was the number two, and you could find what number two is in this location. So if you changed whatever was at that location, what the number two was would change. And so it was really easy to just, like, change out the character model for Number two, which was Dr. Fred, without having to recode anything. Because when you did it in assembly code, you would have to tell the assembler, like, draw this pixel here, draw this pixel here, draw this pixel here. When the character does this, shift these pixels in this direction. You would have to literally, like, spell out how to draw your characters and then what the controller does to move these characters. But what Scum did was it just took all that and did it under the hood. And you would just say, hey, walk this character to this object. It was stupid easy. Um, it also allowed for multitasking very easily. So as a programmer, you could have a background object do its thing while waiting for the foreground like to occur. And basically what this meant was it was super easy that you could like animate a clock on the wall and have it ticking while your character was walking through the room. That seems super simple, but there wasn't a lot of games that could layer things like that on top of it in 1987. So that helped you add a level of immersion to games at a time when it just wasn't a thing. Um, what is special about this? What is special about this is it turns the programming of this of this game and subsequent games into something really simple and logical, like like that's what modern programming languages do. They're high language, meaning they look like we're telling it to do things right. Walk Dr. Fred to the door as opposed to draw this pixel here, draw this pixel here, move this pixel to the right. You get what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: And at the time that was revolutionary. This. This allowed teams to rapidly prototype a game using using this artists could work on the programmers could literally like draw out what they wanted to do and start to map it. And the artists could work in the background on character and program, you know, and background art, and they could easily switch them in and out. So once you made a game, like subsequently in later games, they could literally take the art from Maniac Mansion and use it as a placeholder to start building out their rooms, their actions, and their story. And then when the artist would finish the art, they could plug in the correct art into the game. So you could get new games and everything up really freaking quickly um, with with scum as opposed to having to hard code it in a in 6502 assembly code. It was. It was pretty revolutionary. I mean, it it it's it is revolutionary. Now, Scum, as a side note, it stands for Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion, and um, to say that it changed the way that that people did things is kind of an understatement, which we'll cover momentarily. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, thinking, knowing some coding and thinking about it, like that's honestly, it seems so simple when you think about it, but it's also so in like it's incredibly efficient, like it it's crazy, it's cool,
0: it's very very cool. One of the things that's really special about Scum is it has one other really fantastic ability. What's part that? Of, part of Scum was a reusable interpreter called sputum the scum presentation utility now sputum's job was to interpret the scripts load the assets from the disk and handle all the user interactions with the game so the interpreter didn't know what dr fred was like i had mentioned before dr fred could have been the byte number 2 and that's not how bytes work but i'm really simplifying it um it You know, so you wrote all the, the game, the dialogue, the actions, everything in in Scum, which is a script, and then you would pass it over to the interpreter, you know, and like I said, it didn't know what Dr. Fred was, it knew that it was number two, so it would come across a command that was like, one, two, five, two, you know, and it knew that that meant to move Dr. Fred over to the laboratory door, I mean, that's not specific, I'm just making it as simple as it can. But the beauty of that was that the the script, the the, con- the concept of one, two one two was like hard coded. It didn't it, it didn't know that it was moving Dr. Fred. It just knew that it was moving an actor assigned byte to. Um, so, what this did for them is you could literally make the game once and then create an interpreter for every platform that you wanted to produce the game on. You know, the interpreter would read the scum tokens and make them happen on the platform. So you design the game once, you make an interpreter for the Commodore, you make an interpreter for a Atari computer, you make an interpreter for the NES, and then you package the script with the interpreter specific to that platform, and bam, you've ported the game over to a new platform. Scum was actually cross-platform. Wow. It was it was it was it, it was pretty awesome. Um, nothing about the game. Was hard coded into the code at all, at all. So wow. that's yeah. crazy to think in 1987. Yeah, wow it it was an amazing. I mean, and I say it 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 was is still the keyword. Uh, Scum was around till I think the last release of it was 1998. It was around for a long time, um, but it was an amazing set of tools that really helped this team. Uh, quickly and easily create adventure games. Now, I should say that some of what we know and how I simplified it came later. I'm not going to go into that, but eventually they had like, uh, they, they wrote a manual and had like a university and taught people how to make games in SCUM called SCUM University. Um, but there was no documentation for this game, it just didn't exist at the time. So, um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it was fantastic. Um, the team at Lucasfilm Games, they... Maniac Mansion is very humorous. The whole team had a sense of humor. I, I, I So Sputum, right? Sputum was the scum interpreter. Uh, they were a fan of bodily fluids, Rob. Or were they, Dave? Yes, there was a whole set of tools made for scum that... We're all named after bodily fluids. So spit was a tool that was used to manage text fonts on different parts of the screen. So using spit, you could make sure that the dialogue at the top of the screen was one font while another could be used for the menu. There was a utility called phlegm that was used to define a specific room, track the objects in it and specify clipping planes for character animation. Let me speak about that for a moment. In Maniac Mansion, the characters can walk in front of or behind objects in the room. That's something you really didn't see that early on in the graphic adventure genre. That's a technological achievement for the time Uh, King's Quest and Maniac Mansion were some of the early ones to do that. That was done using phlegm. Mucus was a tool used alongside phlegm, accordingly, uh, to compile a room and its objects into one file. It allowed scripters to make rapid changes without having to recompile the entire room. There was another tool called Bile. It was an animation tool that was used to draw and animate your actors. That was a simple animation engine that allowed scripters to easily cycle animations from one frame to the next. In time, though, specifically for later games that the scum was used, animations became much larger and more complex. So they wrote another tool called Syst. Uh, that could work with larger images. There's also a fun story about another tool called Smegma. Stop. <laughs> One of the programmers had a child and told the pro- like, like Ron and the team that when babies are born, their first bowel movements com- consist of it. Oh, uh, my
1: God.
0: As it turns out, he's mistaken. That substance is called meconium. They hadn't actually bothered to look up spe- Smegma. Uh, they just liked the sound of it, so they created a tool called Smegma. Uh, That only lasted a couple days. Once someone did finally look up what Smegma was, (laughs) they changed the name of the tool.
1: Yeah, I'm not surprised.
0: (laughs) Wow. Oh, man. So all in all, Maniac Mansion took somewhere between 18 and 24 months to develop. It was finally debuted at the 1987 Consumer Electronics Show in Chicago. Uh, That generated some hype around it. With that hype and that momentum, they finished the game and were finally able to release it here in October of 1987. So no familiarity with Maniac Mansion,
1: huh? I do not have any familiarity with Maniac Mansion. No, Dave.
0: It's a graphic adventure game. Case didn't make that apparent. It follows teenage protagonist Dave Miller as he attempts to rescue his girlfriend, Sandy Pants. From a mad scientist whose mind has been enslaved by a sentient meteor that has fallen from space.
1: Okay. Cool concept so far. And digging the names.
0: Yeah. They. So the game uses a point and click interface to guide Dave and two other of his six playable friends through the mansion while solving puzzles and avoiding danger. This is what was unique and special about Maniac Mansion. So we've done a lot of episodes on adventure games up until this point. We've done literally uh, Adventure, which was Colossal Cave Adventure. We've talked about Roberta Williams' early games. We talked about King's Quest. Uh, I don't think that our library of knowledge excludes uh, text and graphic adventures in any way, shape or form fair. So we've talked about this over and over and over. And if you'll remember how, how, how do they control early gra- like adventure games? Do you remember?
1: Ooh, uh I mean, not entirely sure how you mean. So I probably not.
0: You type words, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. I get Yeah. Phrase. So we've talked about a text parser before. Do you remember that phrase? Yeah, it would just check.
1: I mean, we talked about how certain game, I don't remember specifically which one, but it would only read like the first three characters of the text that you typed.
0: Impressed that you remember that. Um, Yes, 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 yes. So, um, So the text parsers, the way games were controlled until that point was you'd have to say stuff like, you type it, right? Open door, read book, look window. Uh, It was always text. It was always verb noun. That's how that's how these games are designed. So read book, look window, go south, open door, stuff like that. And you wouldn't actually know what commands were there. You would just have to hope and pray, uh, you know, that you you said the right words to make it do things. I mean, they were kind of intuitive because you kind of learn after a while. But realistically, you could write anything and pray, you know. Right. What Maniac Mansion did is it took, I think there are 16, it took 16 different commands and it put them in a menu bar on the bottom of the screen. All the commands that you could do in the game were on a menu at the bottom of the screen. So you would click on read and then you the game was controlled with a cursor. You click on read on the bottom of the screen and then you would hover the cursor over a book that's on the screen. The, the, the title would change to read book. You'd click that and voila your character would read the book. It was stupid, easy, so intuitive. It was a giant leap forward in terms of making adventure games accessible to, to more players. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: I mean, you didn't have to guess what, what to type anymore. For starters, your commands were all in front of you and you didn't have to put any guesswork into what you could interact with because you literally would hover your cursor over the screen and, and when your cursor hovered, hovered over something that you could interact with, that name would pop up at the end of the command. So it was super easy to it was, it was just super easy. Yeah, especially compared to stuff before that. Stupid, stupid easy. Gameplay in Maniac Mansion is nonlinear. Uh, you can complete it any different number of ways based on your choice of character. Each of the different characters had different abilities. There were two characters that could play music instruments, for example, and you could use that to befriend uh, inhabitants of the house. There was one that could repair appliances. That was part of a puzzle, um, but you didn't have to do that. You know, there, there, like I said, there were multiple ways to get to the end of the game uh, depending on, on depending on what characters you did. You, you could do puzzles, you know, A, B and D because you couldn't do C because you didn't have the character that could do C, but you still get to where you need to go. That's why they had to take so many time with the note cards to like make sure you had all these different combinations in order to get to these endings. You know what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, which was so cool. There are five different endings in the game based on which characters you choose, based on which characters survive. And based on what the characters accomplished during their time in the mansion, it's very, very story-oriented. These, um, The story of Maniac Mansion is partially told through cutscenes. Speaking of cutscenes, this is the game from which the term cutscene was coined. So if you look up the etymology, the history of the word cutscene, Ron Gilbert is credited with coining the term cutscene to refer to scenes that he created in Maniac Mansion that interrupt gameplay to advance the story and inform the player about off-screen events. So now you just learned the history of the word cutscene. Well, damn. Right, right. And obviously, it's stuck because we still talk. We still talk about cutscenes to this day. I mean, they're still pretty prevalent today. Oh, more so now than ever. Now that we're cin- more cinematic
1: going to say tell me a game. i mean i guess obviously there are games that don't have them but it's not as common
0: well i mean the, but this this is where cutscenes came from i think about games we you know we've talked about games in our repository of knowledge that are cinematic one that comes to mind as being a very early cinematic title was ninja gaiden i don't know if you remember that at all yep. Um, Ninja Gaiden came a year after. It was 1988. This is 1987. So it was about this time when you're starting to see video game designers create cinematic experiences in video games. This is this is this is the late 80s, is when it was happening. And that comes along with the, the style presentation, comes along with the terms, you know. So yeah, we, we got cutscenes here for Maniac Mansion. I played Maniac Mansion. I would have been the NES version. I have no doubt about that. And I never finished it. Um, I never finished it. As a as a kid, I finished it as an adult. I actually went back and played it. Uh, cheated a little bit, but I played it in prep- preparation for this episode. I played through one ending and watched all the others.
1: Mm, okay.
0: I mean, hey, at least you
1: got one, right? Shut up. I don't have all the time in the world. (laughs) Safe states, my guy. Come on.
0: It's it's you. It was unique. I mean, it's still unique to me to this day. Like you have three characters. You can switch between them. So like you move one character to a room in the second floor of the house and then you switch back to a character on the ground floor of the house to hit a switch that opens things for the character on top floor. That's I mean, not quite how it works, but that's the kind of idea between how the way, the way they designed the game and the puzzles and things like that, you know, the inhabitants of the house was a creepy family called the Edison family. And they would be roaming the house and they would capture you. And, you know, when one character was captured, then you had to, you know, switch to the other, you know, they get put in a dungeon, uh, like a little jail in the bottom of the house. And uh, then it would be up to the other two characters to carry on from there and see if you could make it work or rescue them or what have you. awesome i i i'm in awe of how good this still is like i'm in awe of how good this still is to be honest with you this many years later i think about this a lot a good story never goes out of it never ages right i Uh, mean we still have good books we still have good movies we still have good video games the the way they present themselves may be dated you know, black and white movies, books is not a really fair, Uh, is not really fair. Although, to be fair to that statement, there are a lot of great books that we talk about nowadays that weren't books. You know, in the beginning of all things, there were many authors, authors, Arthur. many authors. There were many authors that published their books as weekly episodic. Uh, you know, chapters in a newspaper, Charles Dickens famously would, would do that. And then eventually later on they were all put together and published as a book. So I guess to be fair, the way that those stories present themselves changed in time too. Um, But the point is, is it, you know, a good story never, no matter what, what the presentation is, a good story never goes out of date. So even though maniac mansion is dated, you know, it looks like a game made in the late, 1980s. The story is still top-notch. The puzzles are top-notch. And you can microwave a hamster. It It's, pre- it's pretty popular. It's pretty well-known for that. It was pretty controversial that, that Nintendo didn't catch that and um, didn't make them censor it. Because they made them censor a lot of other things when they made the NES version. Like, there is swearing and nudity and other stuff in the game. Like, the you can find nudie magazines in the mansion, for instance. Um, and, you know, of course, Nintendo being Nintendo in the 80s didn't, was a family platform. So before they brought it to the Nintendo, they had to censor a lot of that stuff out. I never I never got to play the dirty version of the game.
1: Well, that's no fun.
0: That's all right. It was it, and I remember, like I said, there's a red car in the garage that's got a license with this is Edsel. So I learned all about the, the Edsel, the car. Through, through Maniac Mansion, it's it, it interesting. Out in my, it sticks out in my mind to this day because of it. Anytime I think about that, that I think about Maniac Mansion, they're like just in my brain that they, they they go together. So,
1: I mean, hell yeah, that's what's up.
0: I don't know it's great. I I don't feel bad recommending this at all. In fact, I would recommend. I think it's I think it's still a, in the context of things because people tend to overlook like art now. Um, you know, there's this whole nostalgic Renaissance, so to speak. I think this game really fits, still fits in personally very well. So maniac mansion pretty much revolutionized the adventure genre, you know, with that point and click interface, getting rid of the guesswork of what words you need to make things happen just made adventure games so much more enjoyable. It made them so much more accessible to many, many, many people. This is a time period in which we got Maniac Mansion. We got Space Quest uh, a year earlier. Also, in 1987, Leisure Suit Larry came out. These are all graphic adventure games that have a lot of humor in them. So this game was really one that made designers and game gamers both understand that humorous adventure games could very much be a thing a successful thing Um, there are a lot of a lot of a lot of reasons why Maniac Mansion is it's a very important game for a lot of reasons Uh, just a side note they made a TV show of Maniac Mansion it came on the family channel here in the states it was written by Eugene Levy He didn't star in it, though, Um, and that'd be Eugene Levy from Schitt's Creek, for those of you who are playing at home. Um, He wrote it. Uh, He was originally part of a, what is it, Second City comedy troupe. I think that's where he and a lot of his friends come from. And the Maniac Mansion show stars a lot of Second City actors. It doesn't really have much in common with the game. Um, It aired for three seasons from 1990 to 1993. Um, even though Lucasfilms were co-producers and and they had input aside from a kooky family that was um, that was kind of mentally twisted by a by a meteor. There's not much in common with it. You know, Maniac Mansion, like I said, it had sex. It had a lot of dark humor. You could microwave a hamster for frick's sake. You know what I
1: mean? Um, Uh, Yeah.
0: A show on the family channel wasn't likely to share in those themes at all. <laughs> so wasn't likely really to share those themes at all. Um, so it was a TV show. I, I don't, I don't know. I've never seen it. Um, but going back to the point, Maniac matching was incredibly important. One of the most important things that came out of it, other than the leaps and bounds it, it, it lent to the industry itself was the scum engine. LucasArts ended up using the scum engine in, pretty much all of their adventure games from here in 1987 until they finally abandoned it for something newer in 1996. I, I, it got its last release in 98, but I think 96 was the last time that they released a game with it. Um, there are a lot of other games that were created with scum. The Dig, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the graphic adventure, Loom, Full Throttle, Salmon Max Hit the Road, the very first Salmon Max video game, Uh, Zack McCracken and the alien mind benders. These are all really, really important titles in the adventure genre. And they were all created by the team here at Lucas Arts on the scum engine. Um, Maniac Mansion put Lucas Arts on the map, and they were recognized as like between them and Sierra online. Those were the two companies making the absolute best adventure games in the world when adventure games were in their heyday. Uh, and, and frankly, we have Maniac Mansion and Scum and a bunch of great people, too, to thank for that. You know, we we talked about Tim Schafer before in episode 86. He is the designer of Psychonauts. Remember Psychonauts? I remember talking about it, but that, that's about it. His first professional credit was as a play tester for the NES version of Maniac Mansion. Uh, in 1993, he would go on to direct the sequel to Maniac Mansion, which is called Day of the Tentacle. And then his career progressed to where, uh, again, he eventually wrote um, Psychonauts. Um, but, you know, Tim Schafer got his start here, too. You know, it's typically at this point where I, I start to go on about other like Ron, Ron Gilbert's career. But I'm going to leave the rest of Ron Gilbert's career for another episode because... one of his other games that he created, which is probably the one he's better known for. Not that like Maniac Mansion isn't very important to like those of us in history because you know, scum engine and graphic adventure leaps and bounds and so on and so forth. But Ron Gilbert's best known for another game and I already have it scheduled for next year. Uh, It's also an October release. So if you're still with us in another year, you can check it out. Uh, And that's The Secret of Monkey Island, which was another game written on the Scum Engine. Um, He wrote that game. It created a series that Ron has touched on from time to time. It just got its sixth game in the series in 2022, which is called Return to Monkey Island. That's also the last game that Gilbert has officially come out with. Uh, But the point of it is he's still working on game development to this day. Um, You know, he has had plenty of studio changes and there are other games to talk about. But I'm going to I'm going to save the mid and the latter part of his career for his Monkey Island episodes. So, you know, uh, I plan ahead. Hope you're still here next October. It's episode 215. If you're keeping tabs at home. Well, d- yeah. <laughs> hey, one other person. Little side note. I caught this on the tail end. Uh, the music for the NES version of Maniac Mansion was written by George the Fat Man Sanger. Do you remember that name?
1: Uh, I can't say that I do.
0: We've talked about him before because he wrote the music for The Seventh Guest, which we've talked about recently. Yeah, I I still
1: for some reason I, that I name. I know,
0: I know, I know. It just escapes me, I which know. is crazy because well, it's a great name. It's a freaking great name, George the Fat Man Singer. That's how he's credited. Is this George quote Fat Man's you know and quote Singer? So uh, yeah. He wrote the music for the NES, which is a bop, by the way. Um, and then he later on went to write the music for The Seventh Guest. Like I said, we've talked about The Seventh Guest recently. We talked about it in our missed episode, which was just a few weeks ago. It's a fantastic puzzle adventure title. We did a whole episode on it, which is episode 83. Uh, you can check that out by going to our archives and our website, which is www.membercardlane.com. Rob, what else can people find on our website?
1: Well, Dave, you can find calendars of future episodes like the one Dave might have just mentioned that we have planned for next year, October. Uh, You can find links to things such as our Patreon where you can help support us and get ad-free and unedited episodes for your listening pleasure or displeasure, depending on how you want to take that. You can find links to things such as our social media, uh, such as Discord, where you can come hang out with Dave and I and maybe talk some games, just talk some crap, or just tell Dave how wrong he is. And speaking of wrong, you can also find links to our personal social medias, where I can be found on several platforms as Rob underscore O underscore Raptor. And Dave,
0: I'm on various platforms as David is wrong. Each week, we try to tell you a story relevant to the current week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, in this case, Maniac Mansion, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. I think there was a lot on a lot of that today. One of the best parts about getting to do this podcast every week is as we research for every episode, we inevitably learn things. You The beautiful thing about being a video game historian is as you research new topics, you learn new things. We learn new things in order to teach you new things, and as recognition of this beautiful cycle of learning and teaching, teaching and learning, we like to talk about uh, our takeaways each week. So, Rob, what did you learn this week?
1: I mean, this was a whole lot of knowledge drop, Dave. I think that the the favorite takeaway from today's episode, though, is the weird fascination with bodily fluids. I, mean, I don't
0: know what the I don't. Hell? Even, not only do I not know, but I. I so I'm so I'm going to wrap this into my favorite thing of this week. OK, OK, you know, that my favorite part of what we do, like there are some weeks where like I get to do what I call cursory research. So, um, you know, because we do this weekly and because life is life, sometimes like sometimes I just get to dig in Wikipedia and maybe a few links off of the Wikipedia page. Right. Right. And then there are some weeks in which I get to really research a topic or something I've been working on for a while because I was excited about. And then I get to really dig in. This has been a really dig in for me. Like I've been listening to podcasts and watching videos. Ron Gilbert is a very vocal person. There's a lot of stuff about Ron Gilbert out there. Monkey Island just had an anniversary. And so like there's making of Monkey Island where he talks a lot about his career and the things leading up to it and the scum engine, because the scum engine and Ron Gilbert are very much tied. Um, so this has been an episode where I've gotten to do a lot of research and that's my favorite part when I get to like dig into the actual history of it. And one of the things I got to dig into was, you know, they didn't have any documentation for scum at this point, But by the time they got to Monkey Island, they had a university called Scum University, and they had wrote documentation on Scum. So I was able to find the actual Scum documentation manuals from like 1990, I think was the first one. And I think there's one I found from 1991 that was like, this is the documentation for Scum. And I love digging into that stuff, like getting to see how things work under the hood is some of my favorite stuff ever. But the point of it is, I really tried, I genuinely tried to find out, like, why SPIT? Because they're all acronyms, right? SCUM is Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion. What's SPIT? I couldn't for the life of me find out what the acronyms were. It was really kind of irritating. Like, I've got all this documentation. This is a well-known historical, like, moment artifact. A lot of video game historians have looked at this. I, I couldn't find it I may not have dug deep enough I'll, i I'm never gonna give up on that but I want to know what those bodily fluids um I want to know what those acronyms are like I want to know what spit and phlegm and mucus are so
1: uh yeah it would be very interesting to know what those acronyms are because uh it's it's just it's really weird that they manage to find all these different things and keep using bodily fluids as their uh, catalyst for names yeah
0: for sure but this one's been a lot of fun actually digging into digging into it i i brushed up on my knowledge of 6502 assembly language because i wanted to compare it to how simple um scum was because i i mean i don't i I never really dabbled in 6502 so i took some some time to look at some documentation on 6502 assembly language and then how you know scum simplified i got to get under the hood for that and it's, it's really fascinating it it you said it when we were talking about it. It is mind blowing what this engine did. It's just mind blowing what this engine did, how simple it made the creation of future games. Like, it, it's amazing. It's honestly amazing. So, all right, Rob. Well, that'll about wrap it up for Ron Gilbert, uh, Ron Gilbert's earlier career at Maniac Mansion. Um, Again, if you've never played it, I would very much recommend it. You can find it. You can find it in places. There is a 3D remake of it. If you want to try it, something more modern called like Monster Mess 3D. um, It's pretty easy to find it in scum and and various versions of it. So just do some research and and you can trip on it pretty easily. But that being said, before I take it out of here, is there anything that you'd like to add to today's episode?
1: Just as always, Dave, I do want to take one quick moment to say thank you so much to everyone for listening. It means the world to us, and we hope that we bring a little joy and knowledge into your life for every
0: episode that you listen to. Awesome what he said. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> so. All right. Next week, we're going to be looking at an incredibly popular game that was once hailed as one of the most original games ever seen when it was for first released. Uh, now hailed as one of the greatest games ever made Portal started out as just a little like freeware tech demo made by a group of students at the DigiPen Institute of Technology. Uh, it found its way to Valve Studios, and they hired the entire team that made the game to turn it into a uh, to turn it into one of the most recognizable games of the late 2000s, um, and that would be Portal. We're going to take a look at Portal and the triumph that was Portal next week. So, how did it go from a little tech demo to one of the most recognizable games in the late 2000s? Well, we'll answer that question and more as we check our list for a huge success and yet another trip down memory card lane.
1: Doo <laughs> <laughs>